Well, it's a privilege to be here again. Thank you for the introduction. My name is Nathan Bingaman, and yeah, I'm a leader here at this church, and it's always a privilege to be back up here um, speaking, sharing from God's Word, and hopefully encouraging you, uh, convicting you as the Spirit moves in our hearts, and helping you live this, this Christian life. I wanted to sort of explain a little bit of my thought process on, on picking this passage as a way of giving context for what I'm going to say, kind of explain the reasons why I picked this passage. I, I realized as I was preparing for this passage that I'm sort of bringing together some strands and some threads of things that we've preached about in the past year or so. Um, so uh, it's kind of bringing together, centering on our message as a church, I think, and some things that have helped me personally during this time of, of tumult and, and upheaval. Um, maybe you've experienced that too. So I was really glad when I heard the theme for this year, which is centered on Jesus. And I thought that was a great uh, idea, a concept that's always relevant, that we always need, um, but especially now at this time, and something that I was moving towards myself. I recently reflected on my, my behaviors and, and my even my mood and, and stuff in the past year and realizing that it, trying to keep up with the news and the data and all the talk about what's going on, I needed to center on some eternal things. I needed to center on some timeless truths in God's word. And so to center on Jesus really spoke to me um, as something I needed to be doing. And it's a great thing to be doing, of course, as a church Throughout history, um, the, the body of believers have tried to balance how we are in the world, but not of the world, right? And that's actually from the Upper Room Discourse, um, which I'm going to be preaching from um, today. And contemplation is an important ingredient in the Christian life, this centering on Jesus, this considering of God. And in fact, in medieval theology, uh, the beatific vision was the ideal uh, end goal of the life of the believer. The beatific vision just means gazing upon God, considering God, being in fellowship with God so that you know who he is, you know his true character, you know his true nature. And just knowing God blesses you. Just knowing God uh, keeps you alive and keeps you thriving, in fact. And so I think the more that we can center on Jesus, the more that we can center on God, um, we will be blessed. I turned to some famous passages in the Bible that talk about this eternal comfort or even the the communion and fellowship that we have with God in the midst of trying circumstances. Uh, Romans 12, Hebrews 13, John 14. Um, which I'll be preaching from today. We read through uh, Romans 12 as a missional family recently, and there's just a lot of good truth there for how to live the Christian life, very practical. And so I've been kind of falling back on those passages too in the Bible. How do we have peace and comfort and even unity among believers during such crazy times? And of course, one of the elements of the vision of our church is to be centered on the gospel. And as soon as you say gospel, well, what does that mean? I think it can mean many things, and they're sort of organized 
the Christian faith has this beautiful, elegant system of truths and ways that we think. Um, and in fact, we can center in a very meaningful and orderly way on God and see how everything sort of uh, is oriented around him and organized around him. I think the gospel is God himself, and Jesus is the revelation of God. We see that God is communicated through Jesus. His will is expressed through Jesus. And Jesus is God himself, is also uh, very God. And so that sort of orients our thinking and organizes the truth that we know. In the Old Testament, God was known in, in a certain way. Um, there was a certain name, and there was a certain lineage, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the New Testament, Jesus gives us a way to know and to verify which God it is that we worship and which God it is that is calling us. And that brings me to my next uh, reason for wanting to do a sermon uh, like this is the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity. So as God is revealed through Jesus, and we try to reconcile exactly what Jesus is and who Jesus is, we are brought into this mystery and sort of this revelation of God as the Trinity. And the Trinity may seem to us to be sort of an indifferent kind of abstract philosophical concept. I've been reading this book by Fred Sanders trying to get back into Trinitarian theology myself. Um, there's a lot to dig into there, and I really had never done that specifically, so I bought this book. Anyways, I recommend it to you. But the point is that the Trinity is not just an abstract philosophical concept that's sort of fun to think about. It's actually a core truth that we see um, revealed in the gospel, and early, early believers spent pages and pages and pages defending and organizing and understanding this concept. But we also know that the Trinity is a teaching of Jesus. Jesus teaches the Trinity. He doesn't say the Trinity. He doesn't have to. He said it in a different way that would have made sense to his audience, that would have made sense to his disciples at the time. And when early believers who may not have been Jewish, who may not have been Jesus' direct disciples, begin to think about this teaching of Jesus um, and applied some philosophical concepts, what they came up with is, is this concept of the Trinity. And so today's sermon is sort of oriented around that. We're centered on Jesus we're centered on the gospel, which means we have to be centered on the Trinity. But I think there are two mistakes that we can make when we center on Jesus, and I just want to sort of put those before you. I won't go too much in depth on this, um, but as a way to sort of uh, contrast with what I'm going to say in my sermon, I think there are two mistakes that we can fall into when we center on Jesus. And the first way that we, we do that is we, we say, well, Jesus and something else. I recently read this book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is a look at American Christianity and some of the weaknesses of, of Christianity. And so I recommend that you read that. There are many, many different perspectives on American Christianity. This is one. I showed this graphic to say that often we can be tempted to sort of Jesus and our faith. We, we center on Jesus, but then we kind of like slide in something else. Jesus and John Wayne. Jesus and environmentalism. Jesus and social justice, maybe. Or Jesus and asceticism. Like we need to um, really treat ourselves harshly and, and sort of do penance for our sins. So it's like Jesus and something. But the deeper that we go into Jesus' teachings themselves, the more that we understand what Jesus taught, we see how complete it is and how comprehensive it is. 
It doesn't mention everything, but it addresses everything. It has relevance for everything. And if we can abide by and remember Jesus' teaching, we won't have to. Jesus and our faith. We don't have to add something. That's one mistake. I think another mistake that we can make is to only Jesus and focus on Jesus too much. So I found this post on Facebook. Let me explain it. I was thinking these thoughts um, and preparing my sermon, and then I saw this on Facebook, and I had to include it. So someone has posted on the expat group in in Facebook um, this picture of a coffee shop. And this actually happens a lot in Korea. So good job, Korea, for putting Jesus in in the name of their coffee shop. But this coffee shop is called Only Jesus. And I don't know if the person who posted it is a Christian or not, but they said, Uh, Something like, only Jesus, not even the Holy Spirit and the Father are allowed into this coffee shop. (laughs) And so, um, I I show you that to say, sometimes in our churches, we do a only Jesus, and we don't allow the Father and the Holy Spirit into our church, okay? Um, I don't think that's a problem here at our church. Um, We have mention of the Spirit, we have mention of the Father, um, but part of the, the reason for this sermon is to make sure that if we're focusing on Jesus, if we're centering on Jesus, and we should, we should be centering on what he has taught, and what he has taught is the Trinity. What he has taught is the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son um, in this uh, mission, in this plan of redemption and work of redemption to bring us back into fellowship with him. So that's just my funny way of of saying that there are some things that we can do that when we try to center on Jesus and have good intention, we can kind of fall into these these ditches on either side, and the Trinity doesn't allow us to do that. If we're thinking about Jesus' teaching, then we will think about God in the correct way, in a worshipful way um, that acknowledges who he is and who God is. I hope, too, that this sermon takes on sort of a Great Commission shape. As I was trying to organize it, I saw that um, there were some elements in what Jesus says in the passage that we'll look at that uh, repeat or actually foretell what he will say in the Great Commission, which comes at the end of Matthew. What we're looking at is the upper room discourse before Jesus' passion and his suffering and his death. The Great Commission comes, of course, after that. And Jesus says these things um, about teaching, says these things about the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus didn't say, baptize them in the name of the Trinity. He said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same thing, right? So we see Jesus teaching the Trinity here in the Great Commission. He teaches the same thing in the passage that we'll look at. And I think that this passage in John 14 parallel and helps explain the logic of why we're commanded to do what we're commanded to do in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a command to us, and there are even reasons given, Jesus' authority, Jesus being with us to the end of the age. But John 14 and the upper room discourse at the end of John give us this logic. How does the system work? How, what's the plan? What's the strategy? So let's begin to look at the passage This passage begins, John 14, verse 25. It reads like this. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things 
and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So at the beginning of this verse, Jesus is referring back to teaching that he has just begun giving to the apostles in what is known as the upper room discourse. So scholars of the Bible, people who are trying to understand um, what's going on here, um, this is Jesus in the upper room before he is called on to, to drink the cup that the Father has prepared for him, and he sort of lays down the plan for his disciples. It's almost like in a movie, you know, when people are gathered around a table and there's a big map and Jesus is sort of showing them what's going on. This is what's about to happen. And previously, before this passage, Jesus explains that uh, if anyone loves me, this is verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So Jesus has begun to introduce very specifically teachings about the Father coming to abide with the disciples or to abide with all who believe and obey. And these things he has spoken while Jesus abides with the disciples. That is, in verse 25, these teachings that Jesus has given have come while Jesus is with the disciples. The goal of redemption, the goal of what Jesus is doing in his work is to be in fellowship with us, to be in fellowship with those who obey and believe. And we see that because the Father, the end result will be that the Father will come and make his abode with us. But the reason that Jesus is emphasizing this abiding and this fellowship is because he needs to go away. His disciples have begun to worry. His disciples have begun to fear because in this plan, as it unfolds, Jesus will have to go alone to the cross. And so the upper room discourse, there's an undercurrent of comfort and explanation to his disciples because he knows that they know that he has to go and accomplish redemption. He has to go to the cross. Jesus, in this rhetoric of, of comfort, in this message of comfort to his disciples, lets them know that the helper, the Holy Spirit, will come to them and will be with them and will abide with them. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, will come in my name, Jesus says, whom the Father will send in my name. And you could preach a whole sermon series on just that phrase there, but we see just as the Son, Jesus Christ, was sent from the Father, so the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father. And the Holy Spirit is sent in my name. And we see this concept in the Great Commission as well, in my name, in the name. This is among other things, a very strong and established theological concept from the Old Testament. And it means that God is present and in authority and is known wherever his name is. Because, as we think about God, if we're going to get philosophical about God, he's present everywhere. He's omnipresent, right? He's, he's always where he needs to be. He's always everywhere. If we're somewhere, God's already been there. But this idea of the name means that we know he's there. We know that his power is there. We know that his authority is there and even his comfort. So the Holy Spirit comes and is present with us, not because the Holy Spirit hasn't been present, but in his name, he will be known to us. We will know that he is present and we will know that he's there to help us. And the Holy Spirit will do two things. This is really cool. He will teach you all things 
and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So I think Jesus really honors the Holy Spirit and um, gives deference to the Holy Spirit and sort of shows that the Holy Spirit is, is God in his own right. The first thing that he says is, he will teach you all things. So the Holy Spirit can teach us all things. And I think that is a, a layering, sort of a, a double blessing to his disciples, because what we know is that Jesus has taught them all things. And then Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, don't worry, there's going to be a helper. He will teach you all things. So they will be twice taught. They will have a double teaching from God himself. Second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity, we might say. So Jesus honors the Holy Spirit and says, he will teach you all things. So even if I didn't, he will teach you all things. But then he also says, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So this is a purpose of the Holy Spirit coming, not just to be the name, not just to be the presence of God comforting, but also to remind believers what they've been commanded to do, what they've been taught to do but they've been taught to think of the world and think of what's happening. The Holy Spirit is there to do this. And so one way that we can apply this, this passage in the scripture is that the Holy Spirit isn't going to help us do anything but accomplish what the Trinity is trying to accomplish. Have you ever noticed that? Like, I could try to pray to the Holy Spirit to make me a famous YouTuber. Or I could try to pray to the Holy Spirit to make me a, a famous, you know, movie star. And he might or might not help me do that. But if I pray to the Holy Spirit to remind me what Jesus taught and to teach me in this new moment some new thing that applies to the Christian life, he will. Because Jesus promises that he will. The Holy Spirit will teach us all things. All things what? All things that are true. All things that are helpful. All all things that are good and have to do with what God is doing. So we have to recognize with the the upper room discourse, Jesus is being very direct and very open. And the disciples acknowledge this. They're saying, now you are telling us very directly what's going to happen. And the challenge for believers is not to understand or try to muddle through the confusion. No, it's not confusing what Jesus is saying. The challenge for believers, as we'll see, is to believe. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit can teach us all things, that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things? And so we need to believe and to trust that. We also need to realize that the Holy Spirit is there to accomplish the will of God, not to accomplish our will or or our plan, if it's not in line with what God wants to be done. So let's move on to the the next passage. Um, Verse 27 starts, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So, (laughs) that last phrase, I don't know if I can preach on that last phrase. I don't know if I understand that last phrase. Um, But let me start at the beginning of, of this verse 27. So, um, I think the main push and message of what Jesus is telling his disciples is right here in in verse 27, and it's about peace, and I think that's what I want 
everyone who hears this message to understand about what Jesus is saying. There are many complicated things that are um, going on in the world, and there are many complicated things that are, are happening right here with Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And so he doesn't explain here what his peace is. So if I can use a little bit of poetic license, um, I have this, this word picture that I want to present to you um, that sort of connects with other analogies from the Bible. Um, it even connects with other sermons that we've heard here. Um, Carrie has preached on sort of this analogy, I think. And so let me present to you this. I think Jesus gives this kind of twofold, this double expression of peace um, for a specific reason, for uh, a, a picture that he wants to paint of the true peace that he has in mind for us and the true peace that he wants us to take hold of. So Jesus says, peace I leave with you, because he's going away, right? But I also think that this peace is the original peace. This peace is the peace that's built into creation, okay? We know that in Hebrew there's this word for peace, and it's all over the Old Testament, shalom. Maybe you've heard that. And some people even use that word to greet others with. You know, if you were to speak modern Hebrew, I think you would say shalom when you are wanting to greet someone. And even the, the Korean greeting, uh, the salutation and the greeting, when you say hello and goodbye, has an a etymology of this idea of peace. So peace is very important. And so Jesus is doing a very he- human thing and saying, peace I leave with you, when he's departing. But I think he's also uh, says this phrase, this two-part phrase, to show there's already peace that you have. I don't need to give you peace because you already have it. Peace I leave with you. The peace that you already have that's already there, I leave with you. And I think this is the peace that God has instituted in the original creation, in his situation. His overall plan encompasses the plan of redemption. What happens with recreation and new creation is just in unity and a part of what he's already doing with creation. So peace I leave with you. There's already peace here, and I'm here to, to reassure you that God is, is here to bless you, that God is here to give you peace. But then Jesus says, my peace I give to you. And I think this is the new peace that Jesus will win when he finishes his work, when he accomplishes redemption. So I leave you peace because I need to depart. I leave you peace because it's already there. You just need to find it and dig into it but my peace I give to you when I win it, when I win the, the blessing, when I win the salvation that I am going to give you, um, I will give you my peace. And Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give to you. And the way that I would explain that for this sermon is this concept of the world is different than the concept of the earth. And I think you can kind of trace this biblical theology through the scriptures. There is a difference between God created the heavens and the earth. There's the earth, which is God's obedient creation, which is when God speaks, it obeys. And we even see this kind of power when Jesus calms the winds and the waves and the storm. When Jesus speaks, the sea obeys. When Jesus speaks, the clouds part. And so there is a sense in which God's creation is obedient to him. But then we have the world. 
And what is the world? Is the world the earth? No. The world in the New Testament and here in Jesus' teaching, the world is the world system. The world is the group of people, um, humans, maybe even angels and demons, who have choice to, uh, who have a chance to respond to God in a certain way, maybe even in a moral way. And Jesus comes to interact with the world in a very interesting way. And we'll see this sort of in our, in our last verse too. The world is the humans on earth who may or may not be obedient and responsive to God. The earth responds to God. The earth does what the Lord tells it to do. The sea can only come this far, right? And um, when the, the clouds are told to depart, they have to. But the world is rebellious. The world is in, in trouble. The world is confused, and we'll see a little bit more why on that later. So the peace that we can have within the world system, the peace that the world offers is very temporary and can be taken back. And we see that happen in the world. There are things that are given by the world that can be taken away by the world. And there are things that are given by the world that can't be guaranteed by the world. So maybe you have it, maybe you don't. And maybe you keep it, and maybe it's taken away from you. Jesus doesn't give in that way. And he's saying, there's peace I've already given you, and I'm going to accomplish on the cross a new peace that I will give to you to guarantee that peace that I gave to you. I gave you peace in in the original creation, and there's sin and rebellion and death that happens, but I will accomplish a new peace that will reinstate and and reestablish the original peace and intention of God for us. And we see Jesus using kind of this double rhetoric, uh, this sort of um, sentences in, in pairs to establish and to reassure his disciples, I think. Because what he's saying is so direct. Um, we actually read John 14 as a missional family, too. And uh, one of the people in the missional family said it's, it's so uh, repetitive. John 14 is so repetitive. Because I think what Jesus is saying is so direct, it's almost like, did Jesus really say that? Peace I leave with you. Like, whoa. My peace I give to you. Yep, he really said that. Um, and so it's almost like he's weaving a tapestry, right? If you've ever watched uh, someone weave like a big carpet, they sort of like put a thread here, and then you have to push up the, the other th- strand, and then you bring the thread back, and you weave the thread back, weave the thread back. So what Jesus say, is saying here is so direct and so strong, he has to like, yep, that's what I said. Yep, that's why I said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I really said peace, and you will really have it, and I will really guarantee it to you. Even though it doesn't look like it, I say, peace I leave with you, and then I go. I'm leaving the peace, but I'm the one going. My peace I give to you. I go only so that that peace can be established and can be secured. So there's sort of a, a reason for why Jesus talks in the way that he does. Okay, I said all of that because I was trying to avoid um, this phrase here um, where Jesus says, you know, um, do not let your heart be troubled, do, nor let it fear. You heard that I said, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. How do you interpret that? What does that mean if we're talking about Jesus as God? Jesus is God and man. And then he says, the Father... Father God is greater than I. So lots of ink has been spilt on that, and we can read lots of books on the Trinity on how we can parse that or understand that in in the right way. But I think here what we see is that uh, one way that you can interpret it 
is many um, scholars and theologians, we see that Jesus says some things that pertain to his human nature, and some things he says pertain to his divine nature. And Jesus is sort of showing solidarity with his disciples and saying, the Father is greater than I. We are men, we are humans in this upper room. I go to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. The Father is, is God, and I am man. But Jesus is also God, too. So he's sort of shifting and looking at the Father, God the Father, from the perspective of his disciples. But I actually think there's also another thing that Jesus is doing here, too. And it has to do with the sending of the Holy Spirit as well. Jesus is saying, in not so many words, there's a plan here. There's something going on. I will go away, and that seems like we're losing the battle. I am being persecuted, and that seems like we're losing, and like uh, nothing is being done about the struggles of sin and death and oppression. But I'm going to the Father, and the Father is on your side, and he is a great ally to you. You should rejoice that I'm going to the Father. You should rejoice that I will be vindicated, and I will be righteous enough to approach the Father and intercede for you with him because he is powerful. He is greater than I. These things that I am doing, the things that Jesus is doing, are to recruit the Trinity to our side. When we can be washed clean of our sin, when we can be brought back into fellowship and made worthy of fellowship with God, then God can say, yes, I'm on your side. I can't be on the side of rebels. I was on your side, and you went away as a sinner, as a rebel. But Jesus is accomplishing this redemption for sinners, for rebels, for people who disobeyed God to come back into obedience with God. And when they are back in obedience with God, now the Father is abiding with them. Now the Holy Spirit can be sent to them. Now Jesus himself can return and abide with them. So Jesus, when he says, I go to the Father, and you should rejoice because the Father is greater than I, he's saying, you should rejoice and not mourn. Even though it looks like I'm leaving you and abandoning you, that's not what's happening. I'm going to bring the power of the Trinity back for your redemption. I have to go to accomplish my work, and I have to accomplish it alone. But you should rejoice, because when I am back in fellowship with the Father, that means you are back in fellowship with the Father. So there's, there's a strategy here. There's something... Um, in the works. There's something going on. And uh, we'll see that especially in the next verse. What I thought of when, when I see Jesus uh, sort of rallying his disciples in this way is, is sort of like uh, the character Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. Okay? So raise your hand if you've read the books. Raise your hand if you've watched the movies. Everyone's watched the movies, right? Some of my students haven't even watched the movies, and I'm just like, okay. We need to have a movie night or something so that you can watch the Lord of the Rings movies, but you should also read the books. Anyways, Gandalf is this wizard, and he is trying to help the fellowship, and he tries to help everyone. He is very much the helper in the show, but sometimes Gandalf has to be sent away on a mission, and he has to leave, and that really weakens the fellowship and weakens the party, right? And they're like, Gandalf, why are you going away? 
Um, well, Gandalf always goes away to rally more help, right? And if you watch the scene, the, the Battle of Helm's Deep or something like that, and, and the bad guys are coming and they're just swarming in and um, overrunning the castle, and then all of a sudden the, the sun's uh, a rise starts happening and there's Gandalf and he's on the, the ridge and there's a bunch of knights in shining armor that are ready to pour in and, and beat the bad guys, right? That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, you should, you should rejoice. I'm going to rally not just some knights. I'm not going to rally just some mortal uh, friends. I'm going to rally the Trinity to be on your side. They can't be on your side if you're a sinner. It can't be on your side if you departed from them. But if I accomplish this redemption on the cross... If I die in your place, if my blood can wash away your sin, then we are back in business. The Father can be on your side. The Holy Spirit can be helping you, and you will win. You will be on the winning side. You can be brought back into fellowship with the winning side. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here um, in verse 28, as much as it's a Trinitarian quandary. And I think that becomes more clear in what he says next. So, um, in in verse 29, Jesus says this, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Okay, so this is just, Jesus is pouring out blessing and strength and encouragement on his disciples. So, we've seen how he said, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. We've seen how he said, I'm giving you my peace. I will give you my peace. I will do my part. And now he says, I'm giving you another gift. I'm giving you knowledge of the future. I'm going to give you a prophecy. I'm going to give you a truth. And so the challenge is not, oh, what's going to happen in the future? The challenge is, do we trust what Jesus said? I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may what? Understand what's happening so that you can explain to everyone else and be an expert on the future? I have told you so that you may believe, so that you may believe. So belief does this powerful thing of allowing us to be on Jesus' side and to understand what's going on, even if Jesus isn't there, to whisper in our ears that it's okay. Because he's already done that. He's already given it. So what's lacking is not that Jesus hasn't comforted us. What's lacking is our faith and our trust in what he's told us. And so Jesus gives us this gift of knowing what's going to happen, even in the future. And I think that's just, we could really contemplate that, that truth. As a believer, as a Christian, Jesus has told us what will happen in order to comfort us, in order to calm us, that our hearts not be troubled. Even if Jesus isn't here with us, we, we do yearn for him. We do mourn the fact that he isn't here. But we rejoice that the Holy Spirit has been given. We rejoice that he's with the Father. And we rejoice that we know the end from the beginning. He's told us these things so that we can actually be instruments of his peace. Yeah, let's move on to the next verse. In in verse 30 and 31, um, we start to see uh, a little bit more of this strategy that I mentioned um, in verse 28. 
and, and proceeding. But in verse 30, he says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So here we can start to be a little bit more specific about who the world is and what the world is, because there's a ruler of the world. So the reason that there may be a disobedient creation, not the earth, not the obedient creation, not the responsive creation, the righteous creation, there's the world of, of rebels, is because there's a ruler of the world. And that's another sermon series on the identity of who that is, um, but I think it's safe to say as we read the Gospels, it's the devil, the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, um, the one who opposes believers, but not just believers, the one who opposes Jesus and his mission. And we see that Jesus also goes away from his disciples, also doesn't explain things to his disciples at certain times, because the ruler of the world is coming, or it's the time for the ruler of the world. And so there's a timeliness to Jesus' plan, to what Jesus is doing. There will be times where there's fellowship, where Jesus is abiding with the disciples. And then there's going to be a time where he's not abiding. Jesus himself is not abiding physically with his disciples. The Holy Spirit is. And that's for this reason. Um, Sometimes in other Gospels we call it the Messianic secret. Jesus says, don't mention certain things. Now is not the time. It's not the time right now. Because there's a strategy in place. And so the enemy is this ruler of the world. The enemy isn't the world. The world is confused. The world doesn't know. The world is sort of uh, in a blanket of ignorance, in fact. And Jesus is wanting to change that situation. And so Jesus must go, and he's going to face redemption and face the cross. And it is the time, as, as it says uh, a little bit later in the Gospel of John, um, it's, it's the time for darkness. It is the hour of darkness. Um, and Jesus goes and he suffers these things. But it's strategic. And this ruler of the world has nothing in Jesus, has nothing in God. So redemption isn't happening for him. But there's a very interesting dynamic between Jesus and the world. He says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So what's different about the world and the ruler of the world? Well, in uh, chapter 17, if we were to keep reading through the whole upper room discourse, in John 17, Jesus explains a little bit of this, and he actually quotes uh, a psalm. Um, There's a couple of psalms that have this sentence in it, and it says, They have hated me without cause. So the world is this mass of people, and it's you and I before we believe in Jesus, who hate God, who don't love God, who don't obey God, but we really don't have a good reason for not doing that. We're, We're rebelling. The name of the movie is Rebel Without a Cause, right? When you sin, you're a rebel without a cause. If you really stop valuing God, if you really stop obeying God, there's not a good reason for doing that. And Jesus' work and Jesus' coming to the earth can be understood as Jesus giving the world a reason to obey God again. Give the world a reason, a cause to love God. They have hated me without cause But after what I accomplish, they will have a reason to love me again. 
they'll have a reason to draw near to God because they see that I obey the Father. They're not punished because God is out to get them. In fact, their, their punishment is, is being apart from God and being out of fellowship with God. So Jesus is going to go um, and, and go to the cross, not because the ruler of the world is owed something, but Jesus goes to the cross because he wants to give everyone, the world, a reason to love God, to come back to God. And John 3.16 is the same kind of theology. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? So the reason that we sin or rebel uh, is not a good reason. And part of the meaning of what Jesus does in coming and obeying God and doing the will of God perfectly is to give us a reason and a cause to love God and to come back to God so that we will no longer hate him without cause, but we will love him for the best of reasons that God will sacrifice. God will give and extend himself on our behalf. And then there's this little phrase, uh, get up, let us go from there. This is why we study scripture, because this is a really cool little sentence, and I don't know what it's doing here necessarily. I think on the occasion uh, of the upper room discourse, the Jesus and the disciples are gathered together in the upper room, and then at some point, somehow, they move and they go to the garden where Jesus is betrayed. So likely, um, what Jesus says here makes sense in the situation that the disciples know that they need, you know, the, the meal is over and they need to kind of like get up and clean up and, and move to, to the garden. So that's probably why this is here. But if I can use a little bit of poetic license again, I think what Jesus is saying here is very reminiscent of sort of what he says in the Great Commission, which is go make disciples, Right? There's this Hebraism, there's this way of talking where you kind of like put a verb there and then you put another verb there that's a command. And so Jesus is saying, get up, let us go from here and I will tell you the rest of the things and I will pray the high priestly prayer and we'll be in the garden. And what's happening with me discipling you and teaching you and praying for you and with you is happening as we go through life. Not just sitting on top of a mountain somewhere and contemplating God um, in a very passive way, this contemplation of God that I spoke about earlier happens right along with the rest of your natural life. That that is happening and it's going. And and of course, there's something impelling Jesus to go to the garden, which is to fulfill um, this plan of redemption and the story of redemption. But I think it's also, it's it's just thrown in there to sort of show us that um, these powerful teachings that he's giving us even this concept of the Trinity, which could just take all 100% of our attention and our, and our thinking and our energy, has to happen in the context of getting up and going. We go make disciples. We get up and we go. So there are times where we sit and there are times when we go. And it's good for us to go. It's good for us to go out, to get up and go out. So I don't want to put too much weight on that, but I do think it's interesting as I was structuring my sermon, to see how in the vision of our church, there are three main elements. We're empowered by the Spirit, we're centered on the gospel, and we're sent on mission. And Jesus, in the span of six verses, has shown us why we think that's important. Um, 
we see the Holy Spirit. We see centering on the truth of, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father bringing us back into fellowship with him. And so we need to get up and we need to, to go. We need to go and consider these things and teach these things as we go. We disciple as we go. So I think that's really uh, very cool there. So I want to leave you with uh, a picture here, um, a, a way that we can apply this. What does this mean for our lives? How do we apply the Trinity to our daily life? Um, how do we live out Jesus' teaching? Yes, we need to focus on Jesus' teaching, but how do we live out Jesus' teaching? So I want to go back to this, this idea about peace being something that's in the original creation, and my peace I give to you being something that Jesus is accomplishing, and, and we are receiving that grace, we are receiving that peace, much like a, a small seedling receives the nutrients from two places. If you've ever grown like a, a seed into a sprout, if you've ever, um, you know, put like a bean into a little plastic bag and you put some water in it and you watch it and wait for it to grow and send out a shoot and it sends out a root, right? So a plant gets nutrients two different ways. One is from pushing roots down into the ground and searching for nutrients in the soil and the earth. The second way is by sending up green leaves, shoots, and stems towards the sunlight. And photosynthesis happens, and something very complicated happens, where from the very air and the light of the sun, the plant is nourished. So I think we are being, being shown uh, a way to do that same thing. We should have peace because it's all around us. We should have peace in, in at least two ways. By digging in, and finding the truths of God that are just everywhere, right? That's the thing about theology, is theology happens with anything and, and anywhere. You can do theology about any part of God's creation. We can learn or see something from what God has done, what God has made. But then there are also these, these high, 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 and mighty and powerful truths, like the Trinity, or like the plan of redemption, that we, we don't understand, and we're not even commanded to understand completely. We're just commanded to obey. And so we reach out to them, and we let that peace just rain down on us and strengthen us and encourage us in that way. So I, I encourage you to dig into the teachings of Jesus. Um, as we have, you know, the last time I preached, we did, I did a parable from Jesus. So at our church, we're, we're always digging through what Jesus taught himself, not just that Jesus came and taught and, and died and was resurrected, which is the gospel. The gospel is also the teachings of Jesus and what he said. And we can gain peace from looking at that. The upper room discourse, the end of the book of John, where Jesus is speaking so directly to his disciples. And we can learn and, and gain peace by trusting that even though um, Jesus isn't physically with us, the spirit is truly with us. And Jesus is accomplishing this redemption and giving us his peace in in an eternal way, in a fulfilling way, in an ultimate way. So I I hope that you can dig into Jesus' teaching. I'm going to be actually um, 
really focusing and, and reading through maybe multiple times the Upper Room Discourse uh, during this Easter season. So if you want to do uh, something like that, um, read the Gospels, read what Jesus actually taught, what Jesus actually said, um, as a way to gain peace and stability amidst a, a time of upheaval, a time of, of discomfort um, and, and, and trouble. And I hope that as we center on Jesus, um, we're able to fulfill all these other things and be sent to others because uh, Jesus was sent to the world. Just as Jesus is sent, just as the Holy Spirit is sent, so also we're, we're sent to give the world a reason to love God. We're, we're sent into the world to give the world cause to love him. And that's why we love him as well. So let's pray.